The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Tens of thousands of books written about the Civil War, hundreds more each year, And it turns out that almost all of them have only been looking at half of the time between 1861 and 1865, the daylight half. What about the rest? People slept, they dreamed, and in surprisingly many cases they wrote about their dreams so that a 21st century historian could research them and find some fascinating new insights into life during the war. The historian who did that is Professor Jonathan White, author of Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War Era. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as usual from the campus of East Carolina University, the Brewster Building, housing the history department, sociology, philosophy, geography, economics, political science, rows of classrooms, the global classroom, many things, all here at East Carolina University, but I'm not speaking for the university, nor am I speaking for the UNC system, state of North Carolina, Brewster Building maintenance staff, or anybody else, just myself. And tonight's guest, as always, will do the same. 
It is a beautiful evening near the end of April 2017. It's the end of the semester. Classes have ended. Final exams have begun. The tension is starting to grow. The graduates are, the soon-to-be graduates are walking about carrying their purple gowns and caps and posing by the fountain uh, in front of the, uh, uh, the the circular drive in the middle of campus, uh, getting their photographs. It, it's just uh, an interesting time of year uh, to be here and to enjoy uh, the fruits of higher education. I came across an article about higher education this week while looking at something on Facebook, which actually I need to start with. What I came across on Facebook was that uh, my old friend and friend of the show, Harold Holzer, is recently hospitalized, uh, recovering from a a medical situation. Uh, I guess he was out, but now he was back in the hospital. So I'm sending uh, good thoughts from myself and hopefully from all Civil War Talk Radio listeners to Harold. Uh, if you're friends with him on Facebook, which I think everybody in the world is, uh, send him a greeting. While you're on Facebook, go to the page for Impediments of War and be sure to like that page. We're up to 873 in this, the year of 1,000 likes. We're not quite uh, to our goal yet. Don't make me come over and show you how to like a page on Facebook, uh, or I'll, I'll do that. So while I was looking uh, looking up Harold's information, uh, somebody had, had tipped me off to this, just randomly came across another article uh, from January that been, I think appeared in the New York Times about colleges and the students who attend them and how the there are a number of colleges where the number of students who belong to the top 1% in wealth outnumber those on campus who belong to the bottom 60% in wealth really a a skewed bias toward the top. You will not be surprised to know that East Carolina University is not one of those places. Uh, Bowdoin College, where my older daughter went, uh, actually has such an imbalance, 20 to 17. Uh, UNC Chapel Hill, excuse me, has 6% from the top one and 20% from the bottom 60. Here at ECU, we have from the top 1%, just about 1%, and uh, 30% from the bottom 60. I was a little surprised trying to figure out who those one percenters are on campus and see if they will take me to dinner, but uh, haven't figured out quite who they are yet, so they must be out there. Well, in the Civil War universe, uh, let me announce, as I did last week, the upcoming in September uh, Civil War Roundtable Congress. uh, Go to www.pscwrt.org slash congress learn about this National Meeting of Civil War roundtable groups by promoting at free of charge uh, because I think it's a, a worthwhile thing for Civil War students to get to know one another and so check that out. Another way to do that is join us next month on This Hallowed Ground the tour of sites in Eastern Theater, sponsored, uh, produced by StephenAmbroseTours.com. Go to their website, learn more about it. It'll be from May 20th to 28th, and I'm excited about it this year, as I am every year. Uh, Last year, going to Gettysburg, uh, one of the the highlights was to 
crest the uh, the hill as we were driving in Chambersburg Pike and get to the site of Lee's headquarters and discover that the motel that had been there since for pretty much right after the war uh, was gone. It had been purchased by a Civil War trust and uh, demolished and the land donated and it now looks like it did in 1863. This year, as I'm sure many of you have read, the Park Service in the last couple of weeks has carried out a controlled burn on Little Round Top, removing uh, underbrush and, and trees and foliage that were not there in 1863. So I'm very excited to go back and see what that looks like. Everything I've heard about it so far is it's quite different and gives you a much clearer image of why the armies fought there as they did. Many reasons to go. And we can learn more about that next week on this show from next week guess who is Gettysburg licensed battlefield guide Gary Cross so check us out for that on May 3rd following week Drew Gruber executive director of Civil War Trails Inc will be with us to explain how to follow the Civil War Trails to get to Gettysburg or Antietam or anywhere else and then on the 17th of May Michael McCarthy has a new book Confederate Waterloo the Battle of Five Forks April 1, 1865, and the controversy that brought down a general. Controversy, always good for ratings, so join us for that. And then the following week, it's time for the tour. I'll be on the road, hopefully with you. And then in the last month of the season, the academic season uh, for 2016-17, we'll have Dave Powell talking about Chickamauga, Kevin McCarthy, uh, a jazz musician who's composed a Civil War-themed piece, Tim Smith talking about the Western Theater, the battles at Forts Henry and Donaldson, and then it's off to uh, summer summer break. And you can learn all about this, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can buy the books you hear about on the show. You can donate to the Civil War talk radio book and leisure fund making sure it's understood it's not a charitable contribution. You're just donating money, my direction, to support the occasional book purchase for the show. Tonight's book, fortunately, was sent to us by the publisher, but that doesn't always happen. Uh, and if you can support the show, it's, it's much appreciated. Well, one of the things I do with money obtained from the show or from my employer or any other fashion is use it to buy the occasional uh, CPAP supplies for the treatment of sleep apnea. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, may have uh, experienced it yourself. It's a, 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 a syndrome where you wake up, in my case, uh, when I was tested over 100 times during the night without being aware of it. You wake up because you stop breathing. Your body wakes you up in a panic. You resume breathing, you fall asleep again without ever knowing it. In the morning, you just wake up and wonder why you're so damn tired because your body never entered REM sleep and you uh, go about the next day wondering how long can I go between naps. Maybe after my first lecture, I can get a nap in my office. And, uh, getting over that was a huge, uh, getting that diagnosed and treated, uh, this is turning into like a self-help show now, uh, changed my life uh, and made it possible for me to function much more normally and made me keenly aware of the importance of sleep, which remarkably no one has 
ever analyzed in terms of the Civil War until now. Our guest tonight, Jonathan W. White, is the author of Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. Uh, Professor White, are you there? Thank you so much for having me. Oh, welcome back to the show. And, and uh, I'm just so excited about this book because it's so different from uh, anything we've we've heard about uh, in the past. Now, you and I talked about your last book on the uh, the, the the election uh, of re-election of Lincoln. Right. Uh, that was two years ago now. It, yeah, it, was, it came out in 2014, and we spoke in 2015. Okay. That that there's an informal five-year no-repeat rule, but I violated at will because. Because uh, I run the place, and uh, it, this was definitely a reason to violate it. Uh, what got you the idea to write about sleep during the Civil War? Well, it's interesting. I'd like to think it came to me in a dream, but I don't think it did. <laughs> I had the idea probably about nine or ten years ago, and it was actually a book about the Revolutionary War that got me onto this subject. I was reading Joseph J. Ellis's Founding Brothers. And in that book, he has a long discussion of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and what good friends they were during the Revolution. But then, of course, by the 1790s, they really hated one another. And in the early 19th century, Benjamin Rush, who was a doctor in Philadelphia, wanted to help these two patriarchs sort of rebuild their friendship. And he started, he wrote to them and asked them to write to each other and to him and to write about their dreams. And I remember reading that thinking, wouldn't it be great to write a history of the Civil War about dreams? And so for the last 10 years or so, whenever I found a mention of a soldier's dream or civilian dream, I would just throw it into a folder and wait until I finally got around to writing the project. Well, that's uh, a lot of projects work out that way. They're stuff you collect on the way to somewhere else, and then suddenly you've got enough stuff. Uh, right. It's a good thing. Now, when we talk about dreams in this book, you make it clear at the start we're really talking about dreams, not metaphorical dreams, not the dream of an independent South. Right, uh, that's right. For example, but but really what people thought about while they were asleep. Another thing you clear up early that I thought was important is, is you're, you're not analyzing dreams, are you? That's right. I didn't want to do psychohistory. I think it can be problematic when historians try to do that. And that was big in the 70s, I think, and there are some historians who still go that direction, but I didn't feel comfortable trying to lay people on the couch who have been dead for 150 years. And so my approach was essentially to take what I would call a common sense approach to dreams. I wanted to look, look at what soldiers and civilians were saying about their dreams and see if I could find patterns, you know, soldiers from the north having a a similar type of dream or civilians in the South having similar types of dreams and then seeing what does that maybe tell us about what they were thinking or what they were experiencing or their anxieties at different points of the war. The first question any historian would ask undertaking a project like this is, or any skeptical reader would ask, I suppose, is, well, how do you find out? Did, did people record their dreams frequently? Yeah, searching for dreams in the Civil War is kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack. I found a little over 400 in the course of my research, and there have been a few other books from other historical time periods that have looked at dreams, and they have much smaller samples. And 
Well, that doesn't necessarily mean more is better. I, I figured I had found enough that I was, I had enough to go on in terms of writing. I was fortunate in that I had the idea, I guess around 2008, and I've written a couple books since then. So as I was researching those other books on soldiers, I was finding these sorts of things. And I generally, most of them would come up in letters and diaries. I tried for the most part to stay away from reminiscences and memoirs, with a couple notable exceptions in the book. But I wanted to get at what were soldiers experiencing in the time, what sort of dreams did they have that were impactful enough that they sat down the next day and wrote it down in a letter or a diary. Now, dreams are, are certainly the heart of, of what you write about here, but you also talk about sleep itself. And uh, mm-hmm. as, as I said in the introduction, my, my own experience of, of not getting satisfactory sleep and not realizing it uh, made a big difference in quality of life. Sure. These soldiers experienced a lot of sleep deprivation, uh, it seems to me. Right. Right. The The opening chapter looks at sleep during the Civil War, and I, I try to suggest that sleep deprivation, we often think of the Overland Campaign in 1864 as being this moment in the war where you have an immense amount of sleep deprivation, and certainly it was. But I think that other parts of the war soldiers faced just as much, whether it was from picket duty or other sorts of guard duty or just drill and marching, they were tired. And what modern sleep science shows us is that soldier or people who don't get a lot of sleep or enough sleep over the course of a series of nights start to have what scientists call sleep debt. And it, ta- it could take days to recuperate from a loss of sleep. And what I found was that when you suffer from sleep debt, you often fall right into a very deep sleep when you do finally fall asleep. And you fall into the stage of sleep where you're dreaming right away. And when you're that exhausted, your dreams will often be very vivid. And so I think that helps explain why some soldiers were so open about writing about their dreams. They were having dreams that were very lifelike to them that they felt like they were really experiencing, even though it was just a dream. Well, we'll come back. We're going to take a short break, talk more about dreams and sleep during the Civil War. Our guest is Jonathan W. White. The book is Midnight in America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jonathan W. White, author of Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. We were talking about the importance of sleep for soldiers and the what happens when you don't get enough sleep and how it affects things. I'm, I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners have heard the analysis that uh, Stonewall Jackson at seven days performed as badly as he did because of lack of sleep. And, and, and John, you mentioned Burnside at Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. maybe the same thing. The one that, the story that really grabbed me was the, about that poor uh, Union private who was put on guard duty two hours on, four hours off, uh, but not just for a couple shifts. They forgot about him and left him on that cycle for weeks. Right. He never got I, – that, I just wanted to weep reading about that guy. Yeah, that was Wyman White, and he left a memoir after the war, and he just described it four hours on – or uh, two hours on, four hours off, just day and night, day and night, over and over again, and he would complain about – how his officers were more than happy to volunteer him for this duty while they were in someone's home, sleeping peacefully, having people wait on them. This was in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And finally, he got permission to not have to be on guard one night, and so he laid down to go to sleep, and then the person who was supposed to be on in his stead said that they were sick, so the guards came to Wyman White and said, well, we need you on, and he said, I won't do it. So they... They sent him to the prison house, and he was more than happy to go there, where he actually then got a really good night's sleep. And finally, when it was found out uh, what had been done to him, they, you know, his superior officers very quickly put him on a much easier duty. They didn't want to get in trouble for it. Yeah, they, they hushed that up right quick. A couple questions came to me as I was reading it, so I want to be sure to ask you about one. Did you come across anything... Not so much in the book, but just in your research about the times of day when people woke up or went to sleep. And I ask this because it seems to me in a lot of accounts, you read of soldiers saying we were uh, you know, called to arms at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Right. and set off on campaign. They Presumably, they must have gone to bed at dark, which might be, I guess, 8 or 9 o'clock, a lot earlier than today. If I had to get up at 2 a.m., I'd be getting two hours sleep. Right. Uh, how did, did did you come across anything about that? 
I did come across some instances like that. Some of them actually involved dreams. I found a, a number of instances where a soldier would be having a dream that their camp was being invaded, that the Confederates were attacking, and the, in their sleep they would shout, the rebels are coming, and all of a sudden, you know, the orders would go out. No one knew where the, the shouting had come from, and so all the men in the camp would be roused from their sleep, sometimes forced to march a little distance to see if they could figure out what was happening before ultimately it was determined, well, they were roused by a false alarm. So there certainly were cases like that of being roused, or in cases where the armies were going to do attacks early in the morning, they might want to get the benefit of surprise, so soldiers would be roused before dawn and and set to marching. Now, there was an article in the American Historical Review 15 or 16 years ago by a, a historian of, of Britain. Roger Kirk. That's the one, yes, where he, yeah. he argues that in pre-modern societies, human beings slept half the night, four hours, got up at midnight or whatever, Right. had a smoke, had a drink, went to the bathroom, hung out, and then went back to sleep for four hours. So right. when we wake up in the middle of the night, we shouldn't panic. That's what body is supposed to do. Did you, what, what do you think of that? I think his article is one of the most interesting things I've ever read. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he, he suggests that our natural rhythms are to have what he calls two sleeps at night. So you have first sleep and then you wake up for a few, maybe an hour or two and then second mm-hmm. sleep. And what he argues is it has to do with natural light. So before there was artificial light, you would go to bed when it turned dark and you wouldn't mm-hmm. sleep for 10 hours. So you would wake up in the middle of the night and then go back to sleep and then wake up when the sun rose and then go off and do your day of work. And that the the creation of artificial light is what enables people to stay up later and then that rest messes up our natural rhythms. And there are some scientists who have actually taken the work of this historian and, and think that he's right about it. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to know for sure because we're so saturated with art- with artificial light in our lives, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's correct about that. But in, in the Civil War, we don't see that, I mean, we don't see a whole camp, like, well, you described a camp might wake up in the middle of the night from a false alarm, mm-hmm. but even though that's a pre-modern era, by that time they do have artificial light, they certainly have gaslight. Right. Uh, so I don't recall reading of people routinely getting up in the middle of the night during the Civil War. Did you find that that would support his thesis? No, I think that by the mid-19th century, the the natural sleep rhythms of people have probably changed. He's looking at early modern England in that article. <laughs> and you think about what a camp would have been like. You would have thousands of campfires and that wouldn't right. necessarily be bright, but it is a form of light that allows people to stay awake later so that mm-hmm. they wouldn't then need to wake up in the middle of the night. That makes sense. So let's get, we started talking about dreams and sort of wandered back into sleep. Uh, did you find patterns? Were there dreams that, that soldiers commonly had? Yeah, I think the most common dreams that soldiers had, and this is universal for northern and southern soldiers, were dreams of home. And generally, these are pleasant dreams. These are dreams of hugging and kissing their wives, of seeing their children or seeing their families, seeing things that they missed. Oftentimes, you find soldiers, especially POWs, dreaming about food. 
One of my favorite dreams I found was a Wisconsin soldier who was stationed down in Georgia, and his mother had just written to him about cheese that she was making. And he wrote home the next day and said, I had this dream about this cheese that you wrote about. And so those are the kind of things that are most common, are pleasant dreams of home. You do find a number of soldiers dreaming about battle, and sometimes they involve particular battles that they experienced, but other times they're more generic, just dreams of violence. But what I was surprised by was that the most common bad dreams were not involving the war itself, but involving anxieties about the the relationship between soldiers and their wives. And soldiers very often had dreams where they would go home in their dream, and they would see their wife on the street, and they would walk up to her, and she would then not really respond. Oftentimes they would say, they would write in letters to their wives, I went home, and I saw you, and and you treated me very coolly, or you wouldn't talk to me right away. And Mm. seeing those dreams, I think really, you don't have to be a psychoanalyst to look at that and say, clearly, these guys were having anxiety about being away from home for such long periods of time, often without much uh, communication. Yeah, that that is really uh, uh, heart-wrenching to to read about these guys uh, feeling that they're they're being deserted at home. What about the civilians? Did they have the the same thing in reverse? They did. Civilians often dreamt that they would go to the front. Sometimes women would dream that they went to the front as soldiers. I found this more often among northern women than southern. They would dream that they actually enlisted and went and fought. Uh, Other times they would dream that they went to see their spouses. And I remember one New York woman in particular who would have these dreams that were very similar to the soldier's dream of going home and being neglected. She would dream that when she would get to the front, either her husband would say, I don't want to see you, or she would feel like there was still some sort of distance between her and him. And uh, those sort of anxieties were definitely happening on both sides. Wow. uh, Now, of course... These are just dreams, so the soldiers right. write about them the next day, and then are they cheered up by this, or is it worse to have dreamed it and lost it? Huh. It's funny. You find both. You find some soldiers who dream of home, and they're just, for them, the dreams are almost a real visitation where they feel comfort. And I, I suggest in the book that dreams really remind soldiers of what and who they were fighting for. But other soldiers would be really upset because the dreams were so vivid that when they woke up, they were just so disappointed. I found one New York soldier who wrote to his wife about a dream he had of her, and when he woke up, he said he was so angry that it hadn't been real that he went into Baltimore and got drunk. And so the dreams really were meaningful for these guys. Uh, the, uh, the, the 20th century song, uh, You Are My Sunshine, Mm-hmm. which I, I, I recall uh, one of my daughters thought was, was so sad we could not sing it to her. Um, huh. uh, when I awoke, dear, I was mistaken. Uh, you know, I found out, I realized it was a dream. Right. Uh, uh, it, it is heartbreaking uh, to to wake up. The uh, You write, going back and forth between dreams and sleep, Sure. Uh, issues here, which I guess is just, I'm, I'm very taken with this book, listeners, if you can't tell, it, it's really uh, an original uh, look at a, a new topic. You write about how difficult it was to sleep because there 
they're sleeping in the elements. Uh, mm -hmm. They're covered with snow or rain or insects. Uh, it, 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 it's a wonder they got to sleep at all. Right. Right. Yeah. It's that was some of the most interesting research for me. Soldiers I found really love to write home about their sleeping conditions, and a lot of times for historians, those are the parts of the letters that we skip because it's at the beginning of the letter or the end of the letter. You know, I'm, I'm looking up at the stars, thinking of you, that sort of thing. And, and generally, I think we skip that because it doesn't seem as interesting. We're more interested in the battles or the politics or the gossip that they're talking about, those sorts of things. But what I came to realize was that for soldiers, they love to write home about their bedtimes or about their beds because that was something that their wives and, and parents could relate to. And even more than that, what they realized was as far apart as they were from one another, they were going to bed generally at the same time. And so these letters that they would write to each other were really a recreation of their nighttime bedtime conversations where normally, you know, husband and wife lay down and go to sleep. They, they talk for a little bit before actually falling asleep. They couldn't do that when they're hundreds or thousands of miles apart but they knew that they were writing and reading letters to each other about the same time at night. And so they, they tried to continue those sorts of conversations or traditions, even though they were apart from one another. And writing about their beds or where they slept or how they slept was a great way for them to do that. So that, and it, even if it is uh, under the stars is a romanticized way of putting it, but it's also on a tree root uh, in right. the rain, uh, it, it, it was not not pleasant in many cases. Now, when they had these dreams, um, you did not psychoanalyze. You didn't try to determine the meaning of them. But what about the the soldiers themselves? Did they try to find meaning in these beyond the literal meaning? I dreamt of my wife. I miss right. her very much. Uh, did they look for symbolic meaning or or portents in these dreams? Yeah, I have an entire chapter that I call Dreams of the Dying, and that chapter mm -hmm. looks at soldiers who dreamt that they would be killed in battle, and then they were killed in battle in most cases. And so for them, they clearly saw meaning in their dreams or understood what they believed it would mean, and then their comrades remembered it and wrote it down later. In most cases, soldiers would say, well, I'm not a believer in dreams, but this is what I dreamt, and then they would write home about a dream. And it's really funny to see some of them because you know, looking back at them, what they were thinking about, and yet sometimes they couldn't always make the connection. So I found an Arkansas soldier. January 10th, I think, was the date of his letter to his parents. January 10th, 1863. He writes mm -hmm. home, and he says that in a dream, he went to his Aunt Polly's house. And she allowed a black man to sit at the table for dinner, and she gave him a plate. But she wouldn't give this guy who was dreaming a, a seat at the table. And he wrote to his parents, and he said, I don't know what this means, but I know Aunt Polly would never allow a black man to sit at the table. That's not the word he used. But <laughs> Now, this is January 10, 1863. This is less than ah. two weeks after Lincoln's issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And this was a politically act astute soldier. I've read through his letters. He wrote about Lincoln elsewhere. And it was so interesting that he wrote to his parents and said, I don't know what this means. You know, let, <laughs> let me know if you know what it means. 
in hindsight, we can look at it and say clearly he had anxiety about the social revolution that was taking place in the South, but for whatever reason, he couldn't quite make that connection. Uh, that brings us to a connection with uh, the dreams of enslaved people, which you also write mm-hmm. about. That must have been an even harder uh, thing to access, to research. Yeah, that's one of the three parts of the book where I rely heavily on um, memoirs and recollections, slave narratives, because I just I found a few letters written by African American soldiers during the war describing their dreams, but not enough to be able to get an entire chapter. And that's also the only chapter where I go beyond the war years to look at um, the dreams of African Americans. So every other chapter focuses specifically on the war itself. This chapter has a lot of material on the war, but also looks at slaves' dreams from really about 1805 to the 1860s. And it was very interesting to see the kinds of dreams that that slaves would have, either when they were enslaved, often dreaming of becoming free, often dreaming of loved ones who had been sold away. But then for slaves who escaped and became free, they would often have dreams where they dreamt of being recaptured and re-enslaved. So the, the power of slavery as an institution really had an impact on, on their minds even when they were asleep. Now, in that chapter, you also talk about the, the ways that other people looked at dreams African Americans were having, that, mm-hmm. that Euro-Americans would say, oh, you're, you're paying attention to your dreams as, as a remnant of African superstition. Right. But as, as you just pointed out, uh, Euro-American soldiers are having premonitions of their own death and talking about that. Uh, there's maybe more commonality there than the people realized. That's right. I think there was a lot of commonality uh, in terms of white and black dream cultures in 19th century America. I think that by the time of the Civil War, in the black Christian church, especially in the South, dreams still played an important part of the worship experience or the conversion experience. So to demonstrate that you had converted to Christianity, you might talk about a dream you had that God gave you that was symbolic of putting your faith in Christ. For white Christians by the mid-19th century, a lot of whites still had sort of an idea that dreams could carry supernatural meaning, but they didn't have them in their public worship so much. And so you find whites looking down their noses at blacks in in the Civil War era saying, well, these are remnants of African superstition. And what I did in my research was ultimately find that there really were a lot of cross-currents or cross-pollination among whites and blacks, especially in the South, about what they believed about their dreams. So much so that when Alexander Stevens, was the vice president of the Confederacy, was imprisoned in Fort Warren after the war up in Boston, he kept a journal where he recorded his dreams, and he would often write about what he thought they meant. And he would use the very same sort of interpretations that I found slaves using. Well, if I dreamt about this, it means that. You find a white former slave owner, Stevens, having the same exact sorts of understandings of what dreams mean as his slaves might have had. Very ironic, certainly. We're going to take another short break. We're going to come back, talk more with Jonathan W. White, author of Midnight in America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jonathan W. White, author of Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. We've been talking about the uh, the effects of sleep and its well, the lack thereof on soldiers in the war, and on the dreams that people recorded in their their letters or diaries, uh, north, south, free and enslaved, soldier and civilian, uh, all kinds of interesting patterns. There are so many interesting things in this book. One of them is the uh, the footnotes. Uh, listeners, you of course. Uh, always want to start any book by going to the bibliography and seeing if it has any of my books listed. Uh, but after that, you glance through the the uh, footnotes, the reference notes at the end of the book. They're end notes, not footnotes. And, uh, John, you're not afraid to express your views of, of other historians that, that creep up in here. We learn that uh, uh, this historian's work is original, this one's is derivative, this one is unaware of 19th century uh, uh uh, uh, market forces and uh, family culture to expect that soldiers would dream about social reform instead of dreaming about their spouses. Right. Uh, it it, it uh, you don't pull punches in there. Not everybody reads all the end notes, but I I, I certainly enjoyed that part of it. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, I I don't know what that will get you in the long run, but it sometimes but gets me critical reviews, but that's okay. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm all for it. I found it uh, entertaining and and worthwhile, especially in, in getting a sort of look beneath the hood as to where things uh, come from, the conclusions you draw. And I especially want to talk about that in just a minute in connection yeah. with the, the dreams of Abraham Lincoln. But you have a chapter in here about how dreams appear in popular culture, uh, 
in particular, maybe the most famous sleeping soldier of the war is the the sleeping sentinel, the right. Union soldier who falls asleep on guard duty, sentenced to death, and Lincoln pardons him. That story, um, how how well known did that become during the war? Yeah, so that's the story of William Scott. He fought with the Third Vermont Infantry. And at the beginning of the war, he was on guard duty near Georgetown, Washington, D.C. And he did duty for a friend, and then he had to do duty for the next night for himself. And he fell asleep and was found asleep and sentenced to be executed. And he ended up being pardoned. This was very early in the war. I think he was pardoned in September of 1861. And there's a lot of myth and a lot of legend that has cropped up over the years about this story, but it's rooted in a real true story. But even during the war, it became a morality tale. And so it would appear in newspapers and and people would talk about it. And in fact, a poem was written. And in 1863, this poem was read at the White House and it was read... Um, at the U.S. Capitol and then in theaters and in front of the soldiers. And it, it was, in a sense, a, a way to remind soldiers that they needed to do their duty because with, with William Scott, he made a mistake. So he fell asleep at his post in 1861, but then he vowed that he would serve his country and never let it happen again and that he'd be willing to die. And in fact, he was killed at the Battle of Dam Number no. One, which is actually in my hometown of Newport News, Virginia. It's in our mm. Newport News Park. And um, his death really turned him into a, a figure that could be held up as a, an example of what a, other soldiers should be like. So he's pardoned. Uh, you make the point that while generals like Sherman were always telling Lincoln, you've got to quit pardoning all these these mm-hmm. soldiers, it's weakening discipline. Uh, you make the point that actually Lincoln is the one introducing modern sleep science, uh, recognizing right. that, that that it's not there's no justice in executing a guy who who has been put to a, a task that no human can really perform. That's right. I I think for a lot of the professional soldiers, if if a volunteer couldn't stay awake for guard duty, that meant that there was some sort of moral corruption or character flaw. Whereas now we would recognize that physiologically we just can't stay awake for days on end or hours on, hours off, hours on, hours off. And, and Lincoln, you know, wouldn't have known the sleep science at the time, but he, he was a generally merciful, kind hearted person. And I think he recognized the strains that were going on in these young men's lives. And, so he pardoned every single uh, soldier who was sentenced to be executed. So last night, while I was reading this book, I had the television on. It was a PBS American Experience about the nuclear accident in uh, Damascus, Arkansas. I think it was 1980, and some workers dropped uh, a tool down a missile silo, which bounced off the side and punctured the side of the rocket, allowing rocket fuel to escape and leading to an explosion mm-hmm. that could have set off a nuclear warhead but it it began with the description of these guys the they had been on a 12-hour shift and now they were asked to do another maintenance job and uh they were just so tired that they committed the human error of dropping a tool right. down the the silo and as i'm reading this book about the sleeping sentinel huh. uh, uh the human element doesn't change right it uh, uh the, the, the the need for sleep is still there. Now, one thing that does change, you mentioned this, it was just brief, but I thought very interesting, that while the culture 
pop culture portrayal of soldiers and their dreams is everything we've been talking about, dreaming of home, dreaming of family, that that continues on in, into the 20th century World War I. Uh, right. You, you suggest songs and poems are the same. But this does change in the Second World War. What? How? How are? How does it change at that point? Yeah. So dreams of the Civil War are depicted as you would expect in Victorian America with a lot of sentimentality, and you find the same things in popular depictions of dreams during World War One, where you have little girls in postcards depicted dreaming of their fathers who are off fighting on the Western Front, or you have men dreaming of being home with their sweetheart. It's during World War II that you see a real commercialization of dreams, and you find that uh, soldiers' dreams are used to market things. So Greyhound bus line used dreams to try to market to returning veterans to take their families on a trip. And it would talk about the dreams they were having when they were overseas, about coming home and getting on a Greyhound bus and going somewhere. Or you would find uh, Camel Cigarettes did the same thing. And a number of companies, GE uh, General Electric Dishwashers, they have one, um, it's about a corporal, and it's Corporal Clark and the girl who shattered his dream. And it shows the soldier who's over in Europe dreaming about his wife at home washing the dishes and making meals and having little smudges of food and soap on her face. But she shatters his dream by buying a GE dishwasher and says, I'm not going to be standing over the sink anymore. I'm going to use the dishwasher. And so they, the dreams go from being sentimental to really being marketing tools and oftentimes being funny. So that really is a, a fault line in, in the way we talk, the way we think. Everything happens after the First World War. Let's get back and to And I should tell you, that yes. the way I did the research on that part, and that's just a very mm-hmm. small part of the chapter, but for about two or three years, I was going on eBay every night searching for different combinations of the word dream and war and soldier, and I just amassed a huge collection of these sorts of artifacts that came out between the Civil War and World War II. Wow. That... I've spent a large amount of time on eBay looking for things, but I cannot write that off as a professional expense, as you can do here. Uh, Well, let's talk about the most famous dreamer of the war, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who had uh, a number of dreams that he talked about, including most famously one that appears in the the movie uh, about Lincoln came out a few years ago, where he tells the cabinet he had a dream that he was on a a ship or on water and he says I had this dream before several other important events I think it means something big something good is going to happen very soon and he tells him this uh, immediately before his assassination this this dream story really happened because you know Secretary Wells writes about it uh, Mm -hmm. Grant was there he writes about it uh, uh, Seward's son was there. He writes. I mean, everybody. There's no question that he really had, or really talked about this dream. Is there? Right. So that dream, I think, is true. That he was on this ship heading towards some unknown shore. He said, and he believed it meant great events would soon occur. And he hoped it meant that there would be good news from Sherman's army that Johnston surrendered in North Carolina. And I I think we can trust that dream is credible. There were four men in the room in the cabinet meeting that day 
who either wrote about it themselves or told other people about it, and then it was written down. There's two very interesting aspects of that dream. When Lincoln described it, he didn't describe it in a negative way. He thought great news was coming, and again, he thought it would be good news from the front. Mm -hmm. But as uh, people wrote about that dream over the years, they began to add in words like dark or unknown, things that would make it seem like Lincoln had an actual premonition that this was going to be his you know, the last day he would be alive. Gideon Wells first describes it in his diary as Lincoln heading towards an unknown shore, or heading towards a shore, and then he later adds in the word dark to try to add that sort of sense that there's foreboding here. Um, that dream has come out in a lot of literature on Lincoln, and like you said in the Spielberg movie. There's another dream of his assassination that I look at, and yes. this one... Um, Lincoln is asleep in the White House. It's about 10 days before the end of the war. And he has this dream that he hears weeping in the White House, but he can't see anyone. And in his dream, he wanders around and he hears this weeping, but he doesn't see anybody. He eventually makes his way into the East Room of the White House, and there he sees a coffin and a soldier guarding it. And he goes up to the soldier and says, Who is dead in the White House? And the soldier says, the president, he's been shot by an assassin. And at that point, there's another burst of grief, and now Lincoln can see all these people weeping around in the room, and he wakes up with a start, opens up his Bible. Every passage he turns to is a passage about God sending visions or dreams to people in Old and New Testament times. And um, Lincoln is said to have had this dream right before, about two weeks before his assassination, and that it really shook him up. And this dream has appeared in books, in movies, in television shows. If you remember the old show Touched by an Angel, I actually, in my research, I found an entire episode about this dream, where the dream was a centerpiece of it. And uh, I did a lot of research in terms of trying to find where this dream came from. And everyone who cites it cites Lincoln's bodyguard, who wrote a memoir in 1893, or his daughter published it posthumously. But... This 1893 recollection is the source that every historian and writer uses, but I was able to find sources from about 20 years earlier, and ultimately I, I think the dream is a fabrication that someone thought, this is a great story, they made up a story about Lincoln, it circulated in newspapers, it circulated in a literary magazine in the 1880s, I think Lincoln's bodyguard found it, his name was Ward Hill Lamon. I think Lamon found this story and thought, this is a great story. I would look really good in it. And so I think Lamon then inserted himself into it, and historians have quoted it ever since. I, I think you make a very convincing case. My own mentor, David Herbert Donald, uh, you, you mentioned he and, and, mm -hmm. uh, the, and, and the Fehrenbachers, uh, right. in, in, in their work on recollected words of Lincoln also doubt this story. So I think you're in very good company. Uh, I wish we had more time to go into the detail of how you put those pieces together. Uh, once again, the footnotes pay off dividends. You reference, you wrote an article for the, uh, uh, the, the Lincoln, the Abraham Lincoln Association newsletter mm -hmm. a few years ago. And in your footnote, you say, since then, you've discovered some additional evidence, and you're able to correct the, uh, a mistake that appears in that article. Right. I actually I had that newsletter in the office, and I went and dug it out and read it and said, okay, I see where that 
it's like a look underneath the hood to see how a historian works. You find evidence, you find new evidence, things change. Uh, And ultimately, I I agree with you. I think it's a very convincing case that uh, Lehman's story is not not authentic. Uh, Your description of Lincoln's uh, so-called dream after the Battle of Stones River is even more to the point. Uh, uh, But alas, we are out of time. Uh, it, it's almost time to put this show to bed, cannot resist the metaphor, and uh, uh, move on. But listeners, you will enjoy Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War by Jonathan W. White, uh, our guest tonight. Uh, John, it, it really is an entertaining and enlightening book, and I appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on again. And listeners, as always... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.